A little floppy, but we'll be there. I'll just do it down here. Okay, good afternoon. The blessing of the Lord be on you. I bless you in the name of the Lord. Because the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And he addeth no sorrow with it. What then does he do with our sorrow? He adds his blessing even into the sorrow and turns it to joy and thereby enriches his life. Some of you listened to me this morning or sometime or you already know it yourselves. It's really true. I want you to pray with me now. In Jesus' name, we find everything we need is promised to us. In our relationship with the Father, all the healing, all the blessing. In our relationship with the Holy Spirit, all the comfort. In our relationship with the Son, all of the redemption that we need. And I thank you now that you are here to turn our sorrow into joy. Let your Holy Spirit, O Heavenly Father, Rest richly upon every woman in this room. Thank you for helping us during this time to receive something that will actually impart to us from your heart that can which can help us to keep going. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So we call this sowing and weeping and finally reaching. The verse I use for the text is out of 126, and I'm going to try not to do the whole, the whole psalm for you. In fact, I think I spoke on this the last time I was here. Psalm 126, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Now, what does it mean to turn the captivity? It means to return captives. That's the first thing it means means time for the captives to come home. Say it with me. Time for the captives to come home. Whatever their captivity, it is something that's keeping them from being in their homeland, being in their homes, being in the right mind, being in right relationship, whatever may be the captivity. But the second thing that it means to turn the captivity is to actually make that which was the captor now the captive and take that which was the captive and turn it upside down where the captive becomes the captor to take captive his captives that's not a bad plan right and so it bespeaks victory in some kind of warfare Victory in some kind of bondage. It means redeeming a life from destruction and putting a victory in that life where no more can the destroyer destroy. But instead, the one who was about to be destroyed comes and takes captive the destroyer. So Jesus said that when he went into captivity in the grave, while he was there, he thought he'd take care of the destroyer and he would strip him of his power and of his might. 
Now, we're going to talk specifically about issues that have to do with personal grief and, and, uh, and uh, difficulties that are in our personal life <clears throat> and the various captivities that we can come to. But you need to understand this on a larger scale, that this is a principle that God spoke through his prophets more than once, and it is an, an actual fact that he demonstrated through his people collective more than once. Of course, it starts with Exodus. But it happens when, uh, when those who have been captive are set free. There are other places in Scripture that refer to this. If you want to study it out, you can find it in Isaiah 14. You can find it in Ezekiel chapter 39. And you can find it uh, in Isaiah 54. And Mary, I didn't bring glasses with me. You can find them. I can preach by faith and not by sight, but sometimes <laughs> I need to see things. Now, in the, in the rest of this psalm, it talks about the change, and I call, I call this principle the when-then principle. First word in the psalm is what? When. When the Lord turned the captivity, and it takes God to do it, to turn captivity upside down and all around. It takes God to do it. But you have when in the first verse, and you have then in the second verse. Are you looking at it? Then was our mouth, what? Filled with laughter. Secondly, then was our, our tongue filled with singing. Now, there's a difference between trying to laugh and having your mouth filled with laughter. There's a difference between trying to sing, especially when people are telling you, now you need to just sing your way out of this. Do what Paul and Silas did. Well, I don't believe they just sang. I believe their mouth was filled with laughter. Their tongue was filled with singing because God came into them and flowed through them and, and turned things around. But they did the singing before the captivity was turned. But if you remember the story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, at midnight, when they were totally in stocks and bonds, not from Wall Street, <laughs> they began to sing and to praise. And what happened? Captivity was turned around through the dynamic of their praise. God, I don't know how he did it, if he sent angels to just shake up the prison, or if the Holy Spirit just came and burst those doors open with resurrection life happening. We don't know if he just put his foot down on the earth and it rattled the whole earth with an earthquake. I don't know if anyone else in Philippi felt that shaking, but Paul and Silas felt the shaking. And with them, everyone in the prison was set free. Not bad, right? And so when you have victory take place in your life and there are other people that are with you in the thing and victory comes to you, it is meant to be shared. It's meant for other people to be set free when you are set free and because you are set free. But can you see how captivity was turned captive in that situation where it had been the... Uh, 
jailer that had kept them captive and those that were with him that had scourged Paul and Silas. Somebody else had locked the stocks. Somebody else had put them in chains. Somebody else had used the whip and had beaten them and scourged them. Hey, somebody else did it. But before it was over, who was in charge of the prison? Well, God was. Through whom? Paul was in charge of the prison. Who fell down at the feet of whom saying, how can I be saved? The jailer was at the feet of Paul and Silas. Now, who was started out as the captive? They seized him. Paul and Silas. In the end, who's the captive? It's the jailer. But he's a captive to the spirit of grace. He's a captive to the spirit of redemption. He's a captive now to the spirit of mercy, which he never has extended before. He's a captive to the spirit of love. And as he says, what do I need to do? What must I do to be saved, delivered, rescued? It was because he knew he was captive now. If he wasn't captive to Paul and Silas, he knew he was captive to the Roman system because the Roman system said that if you were in charge of something and you failed in your duty, it would be best for you to fall on your sword before the officers get a hold of you because you are going to die for this. So it was the noble thing for Romans to do. Some of them carried poison with them. Some of them carried sword. But if they were in leadership and somehow they were about to be taken captive, they killed themselves first. If somebody took a hold of them uh, from the enemy camp, then they knew it's better to die at your own hand or by the poison that you carry or have somebody slay you it was the noble thing to do so that you did not die in captivity if you could take yourself out. And he knew the Roman system was going to call for his, his credentials, for sure, call for his job. And so he was about to fall on his sword, and Paul knew that. Paul understood. He grew up in a Roman colony. He understood this. And he cried out and said to the man, what? Do yourself no harm. We are all here. Is that amazing? It's amazing. We're all here. Nobody escaped. Everybody was in such shock that they ended up in total submission. And so Paul had all, the, all, the, all of the leadership, but he also had all of the other prisoners who are captive, so to speak, to the miracle that is being worked in the thing. Can you see that captivity was turned upside down in that situation? When the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Now, I imagine everybody else in that prison was saying, this can't be real. The doors are busted out. The windows are gone. This can't be real. The chains are off me. Well, this can't be real. You think so? Yeah. Same thing happened to Peter. When he, in Acts chapter 12, when he was lying between two soldiers with chains on his hands, bound to these two soldiers, and four quaternions of soldiers, that 16 soldiers are watching him. He was a very important captive, wasn't he? That tells you how valuable he was, whether it was 16 or 18 soldiers told that were watching him. Because the captivity was imposed by the principality, the one who ruled, his name was Herod. And Herod was trying to please the leaders of the Jews and he saw it please them when he killed James. So he said, well, let me get another big fish. And he took Peter. Do you think Peter was captive? 
Yes, he was. But in Acts chapter 12, when the angel came in, because there's never been a prison strong enough, there's never been a lock secure enough, there's been a, never been a wall thick enough to keep out the angel of God, the spirit of God, or Jesus himself, if he wants to come. And so the angel was suddenly inside Peter's prison and was shaking him and slapping him on the side. It says, says that he slapped him, he smote him, hit him, and said, get up. And you see, when God comes into a situation where somebody has been in captivity, where the principalities and powers of darkness are having themselves themselves a little party, and they're saying, we got one, and now we're going for the other, and this is really fun, and God says, enough, and he suddenly turns the captivity. Now, when Peter heard the words of the angel who said, rise, dress yourself, gird yourself, put on your shoes, and follow me, we are going out of here, then those soldiers never woke up. Nothing in the prison changed except that Peter had resurrection life working in him and redemption. Of course, it's easier to get it if an angel slaps you on the side and imparts it to you right then. <laughs> and when your cell has been dark and an angel comes in and lights it all up, and when you've been afraid that the soldiers would know when you wake up and they're put to sleep so they don't even wake up when you get up, and most of all, when you've had chains on your hands and you knew it wouldn't do you any good to try to get up, but an angel smites you, says, get up, and in some supernatural way speaks to those chains, and the chains fell off from Peter's hands, not fell off from the soldier's hands. Soldiers still chained. Peter is free. When that happens to you and you realize that that thing that had you in its grip, that thing that had you captive, that thing that said to you, you might as well not even try to get up and get out of here, it's no longer powerful over your life. Chains fall off your hand. You find resurrection in you. You get up and you start to go. And you find out that the prison starts opening around you. And they went out through the first ward and the second ward. They got to the big gate. You know, the big gate in front of the prison. And it opened of its own accord. Say that with me. It opened of its own accord. By its own will, the door opened. Do you believe that's all there is to it? Don't think so. I put, I think the God, the God of heaven put a will in the door to open up and let the captive out. And the door said, what am I doing? I've never done this before. I must be dreaming. I was dreaming that I was an electric eye door. I, I've never been here. Even the door was dreaming. The prison said, this can't be. Nobody's ever walked out this way. I've never come under the power like this. But Peter walked out, you find it in Acts 12, and the angel led him all the way out on the street. And when he got out on the street, the angel departed. Now that's what's scary. When, when you think it's a dream, you don't want the angel to depart. You want to stay in this dream. It's better than the reality of where you were. But the angel wants you to know this is reality. This is true. He has turned your captivity. And so it says in Acts chapter 12, Luke said in Acts chapter 12, that when Peter came to himself, or let's say then Peter came to himself, right? When 
the Lord turns the captivity of Zion, then we are like those who dream. And it says in Acts chapter 12 that that's literally the way Peter felt. He came to himself and he said, I thought this was all a dream, but it looks so real, this street, that building. I know where I am. And he pinched himself and said, self, you're really here. This is all different from five minutes ago. Something had turned. And it says that Peter said he supposed that he was seeing a vision when he saw that angel. Well, he was. He was seeing a vision of something that he hadn't been able to see before. But it wasn't just a vision that left him in a dream. It says he came to himself and he said to himself, now I know, say it with me, now I know of a surety, say it with me, of a surety. This is a sure thing, this is real. This is, this is, I have every confidence it's real. He went over and felt the stone buildings and he, and he looked at the sidewalk and, and he saw the street sign. He said, this is the real world and I'm out of the prison. I don't see any prison around me. And when he said that, he said, now I know of a surety that God has delivered me. See, that God has what? Delivered me out of the hand of Herod, say it, out of the hand of Herod and, say and, because you really want the end. Because when you get delivered out of the hand of the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness that are controlling the people who are controlling people, when you get free of that, it's a fabulous thing. But there's something else that goes with your deliverance. He said, I'm, I'm delivered. God's delivered me out of the hand of Herod and out of all the expectations of the people, say it, and out of all the expectations of the people. Anybody ever had any bondage in your life because of the expectations of people? Yeah, and some of them, these people expected Peter to die the next morning. He, in fact, expected it, but they expected it, and they were rejoicing. But God gave him a when. God turned the captivity of Peter. And he was like someone who was dreaming. This can't be real. But after he took all the steps and walked all the way and the angel departed and the vision was no more, what did we want to know? We wanted to know whether this deliverance was really real and was it going to last? And if it's going to last, he's going to be able to walk away from there. He doesn't have to get back into the prison. He's not going to wake up in the morning with shoulders, excuse me, soldiers yelling at him. He's not going to wake up with a sentence of death over him. He's not going to wake up with an appointment to go out and be beheaded. He's going to wake up free and healed and someplace else he never expected to be. Now, here's the principle. You never get a then until you've had a when. Say it with me. You never get a then until you've had a when. Now, Paul, I said, Paul and Silas were singing, probably laughing and enjoying one another before the prison was opened. But I want you to see something. God can turn the captivity in your soul 
before he turns the captivity in your circumstance. And you better know it, expect it, believe it, so that you are free enough in your prison to praise and to sing and to trust God and to declare yourself free even if you feel stocks and bonds upon you, you can be so free in your spirit, so let's say it together, that God can turn the captivity in your soul. Say it. God can turn the captivity in your soul before he turns the captivity in your circumstances. Spirit-filled women learn how to get victory inside before they see it manifested outside. Say it with me. Spirit-filled women learn how to get victory inside before they see it manifested outside. And all that Jesus taught us about the Holy Spirit was that he will be in you. And he said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. What is he saying? You can be free on the inside even if there's tribulation going on around you. In fact, he said, be so free that you rejoice when they do this to you, when they say all manner of evil against you, when they treat you in ways you don't really enjoy. By the way, you're not expected to enjoy the cross. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 said Jesus endured the cross. So Sylvia says, I have to learn to endure until I can enjoy again. Say it together. I have to learn to endure until I can enjoy again. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Not that he enjoyed any part of the cross. There's nothing about it that says he enjoyed it. But when the Lord turned to the captivity, I believe he enjoyed it. I think he really enjoyed getting off that slab. I think he really enjoyed the light that filled that tomb. I think he really, really enjoyed walking out the door <laughs> where there was a Roman seal that said, nobody can empty this tomb. Nobody, nobody can open this. Nobody can roll away this stone. Even if they have the power, they don't have the authority because the Roman seal is upon it. And the Roman soldiers are outside to make sure nobody but a Roman officer opens this. And angels just didn't get the message. They didn't know that they were subject to human authority. And they just did what the Father said to do. And I believe that they did that, the angels did that, maybe even a little earlier than they expected, because of those few women, Mary and the other Mary and Joanna and Salome and whoever were those women of faith that got up. I don't know whether they slept any the night before. I kind of doubt it. You don't sleep the first night after someone you love is put in a tomb. Not very often does anyone sleep with that sorrow. But they were waiting for the Sabbath to pass. And I'll tell you what, Sabbath passed. And those women were on the road. They were tiptoeing through the city of Jerusalem heading for that tomb. And I think that they were taking steps in faith. And as they went along, what question did one of them ask? One of them asked a very important question. Maybe all of them asked it. Who will what? Roll away the stone. They didn't say, we can't roll away the stone. What are we going to do? There's, there's no sense in our going there. We're not going to be able to get in there. We're not going to be. No, they said, who will? Oh, is this thing on a leash? Oh, for pity's sake. Captivity to a tape deck. 
I wondered why it was working so hard to get off me. Okay. Who will roll away the stone? Ask the question with me. Who will roll away the stone? Do you know they're prophesying? Prophesying somebody will. We just don't know who the somebody is, but that stone's going to roll away. And I think that when they started tiptoeing through the streets of Jerusalem, I think it rattled heaven. And I think God said, hey, those women are on the move. They're expecting something. And we better get down there. And he called his angels and said, get down there. My son's going to get up. He doesn't have any clothes. Take him some clothes. Get him going. And he was out, not before they got there. But you see, what they witnessed when they got there was that captivity had been turned. Captivity is anything that is controlling people and circumstances with darkness, with oppression, with sin, whatever. But it was turned. How many of you know he's gone a little higher up now? And there's no captor that will ever take him again. And Paul said that death has no dominion over him, and therefore sin shall have no dominion over you. So that even if you're in the captivity of sin, in habits and patterns of sin, it doesn't have power or authority to hold you captive once the dominion of Jesus' name is put upon it. If death, which is the ultimate expression of sin, hear this with me, if death, which is the ultimate expression of sin, was conquered and taken captive by your master, then if he's your master, if he can deal with the ultimate captivity of death, then he can deal with the captivity of sin, which results in death, because sin is not so powerful as death. Death is the final, and you know how final it is. So when, when God turns things for you, and suddenly you realize, I'm free, but it's not only I'm free, but I am free now to conquer my conqueror. I'm free to take captive my captors. I'm free to become master over this situation. Same thing happened in Acts chapter 27. Paul was a captive. He was put on a prisoner ship. It was a cargo ship, but he was on a prisoner ship with all the other captives. They were all prisoners. And they were taken off the one ship, put on the other ship. And Paul tried to tell them, you shouldn't leave this place now. It's too late. The winter is on. You should stay here. They didn't listen to him because he wasn't the boss yet. He wasn't the captain yet. He's the captive. But when they got in that big storm and the ship was being destroyed and people's lives were in danger. Who became the captain of the ship? The one who was the captive, Paul, in the end, was the captain, telling the captain what to do, telling everyone what to do. Why? Because an angel isn't afraid of storms. 
And an angel came out there and stood by him and he said, the angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve. Say that line. The Lord, whose I am and whom I serve. I'm his servant. I'm his possession. I'm not ruled by my circumstances. I'm not ruled by people who think they have me chained. Oh no, the angel of the Lord came, stood by me, told me, cheer up, that I need to get to. I must go. I must appear before Caesar, and I must make it to Rome. And then he told me, y'all are going to go with me, because now, when he's the captain of the ship, he saves everybody on the ship, see? And in, in the end, the ship was broken up, but not one soul was lost, not one not even the mariners who were going to jump ship and try to take the life raft and go. How long do you think they would have lasted in that little lifeboat out in that, in that storm that's called Eurachlodon? I have a tape called God's Purpose in the Storm that helps you to know how God can use you in a situation where you were the captive and you become the captain with a word of life to give. And it is right for you when you are in any kind of captivity, it is right for you to expect that God will turn the captivity, but also that he will give you something that will save the lives of others. And yes, it is possible that he allowed you to get put on that ship for the sake of saving them. It is possible that he allowed you to get into that prison so that you can save the prisoners that are there and the jailer. Now, when this psalm finishes with how God turns that and how the heathen can see it, it's evident. Then, they, then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done great thing for, things for us. And then when the people themselves confess it, the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Then it indicates that God himself has put laughter into people where it wasn't before. Whereof we are glad means because of what God has done, gladness spontaneously has worked in our lives. Yes, God has done something great. Then he cries again for the turning of the captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And then comes a promise, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now this thing about turning the captivity as the streams in the south, I want you to picture yourself looking down from the air an aerial view of what happens on the ground when you see a river. Now, if you just see it on a map, you may see it doing all these <laughs> twists and turns. Rivers never go in straight lines unless they're being channeled through man-made canals. They always are wending their way and turning. And he remembered looking upon a stream that seemed to be going this way and then it took a turn, and it started turning back this way. Now, when the Lord turns your captivity as the streams in the south, I want you to understand you don't always realize things have started to turn. You don't always know. We just took the first degree of an angle of turning. And when you stand right there at the river, it doesn't look as though it's turned necessarily, but down a little way, you're gonna realize this thing has turned around. 
it's going back the other way. And you start seeing changes in your circumstance. You start seeing changes in your own spirit, in your own attitude. You wake up one morning without that captivity on you, and you say, what's happened? I'm dreaming I'm not awake yet. This can't be. What? And then you realize I'm in my own house. This, this does look familiar. Hey, but I don't feel the familiar feelings. We have a sister here with us who was at our conference in August. Will you, will you just raise your hand? Is it Barbara? What was your name? Barbara. Barbara. This lady has a disease that had, had uh, taken her for over a year. Bar raise your hand again, Barbara. And she had been absolute total pain in all her face. Am I right? Half the face, half the face. Such excruciating pain for over a year. And Jesus touched her. We had a, a conference with a theme of healing. Jesus touched her. She came up to me here, and I want to tell you, nobody has to ask her to laugh. <laughs> nobody has to say, you feel like singing. She is, and she said, I've had no pain. I've had no pain. All her medicines weren't taking it away, and now she's coming off the medicines. Hallelujah. And I said, well, now have you seen your doctor? Oh, well, he says, well, it's in remission. I said, it's a good word. It's God's word. He believes in it. Remission is the way he does it. It means to send something back where it came from and just tell that thing to go. Now, when, when you wake up in the morning or when you woke up those first few mornings, were you there saying, is it going to hit? Am I going to feel it? Where is it? And you go through the first hour and you say, where is it? It isn't there. And before it's over, you're saying, I believe this captivity has turned, you see? And nobody has to teach you how to sing again when the song of the Lord is born in your spirit. I remember when I'd gone through uh, actually 10 years of intense persecution. There's a lot of fruit from it now. But there was a lot of persecution. And one of the things that happened to me is the, is the stream of my uh, uh, creativity dried up. The well of my creativity dried up. And I hadn't written a poem in 10 years, I noticed, where I used to write poems all the time. And one morning I woke up, and I had a line of poetry in my brain. It was 5 o'clock in the morning, and that's how I know it's God. <laughs> I see it from, from the night side. I don't see 5 o'clock from the morning side. When I see the sun is about to come up, I say, oh, you better get to bed, because you can't ever get out of a bed you didn't get into. And if you're going to get up in the morning, you've got to go down. So. I, I, I woke up at 5 o'clock and there was this word in my brain, Felicity, thy name is joy. And with it was a spontaneous joy welling up on the inside of me. And I jumped out of bed because I didn't have my yellow tablet with me. I used to sleep with a yellow tablet because poetry came to me in the night. And I didn't have one. I had to go look for it in another part of the house. And it just flowed and flowed and flowed. And I realized there was a crack of sunlight. Dawn had come. It was coming through the drapes. And I went over still with my yellow pad and was writing as I went to the window. And I took the cord of the drapes and tried to pull them apart. And they went into an X like this. And I realized I had the drapes pinned close. And I hadn't opened them in so long because I didn't have any sunshine flowing in there. I had to unpin it, loose them before it was over. I just went on out the door because I saw the sun sparkling and shining off the cross on the top of the church across the corner, and it was making a cross in the sky. 
and even in the trees there was such beauty. My captivity was broken. It was turned. And I began to laugh and to sing in ways I hadn't for a long time. The Lord has done great things for us. That's way, why we are so glad. But then he comes into what you've invested during that time. And during that time, you've been sowing. You've been sowing something. I don't like to be a captive behind a table. You've been sowing in tears. You've been watering the dry ground with the rainfall of your soul. And he says, they that sow in tears, what? Shall reap. But they don't reap before they weep. Now is the weeping, then is the reaping. And so the last verse says, the one who is going forth with weeping. But going forth means you're coming on up, out, and you're going forward. That's what going forth means. It means coming on up, out, and going forward. Because you can take a posture of saying, I'm coming out of here. I'm not staying here. I'm not building myself a monument to my grief, to my loss, to my pain, to my sorrow, to my anguish. I'm not building here a monument to my enemies who managed to steal my joy, take away my liberty, and impose upon me the restrictions of captivity. I'm not building a permanent marker here that says Sylvia was here. I'm coming up out of here. I'm going forth. I'm going out. And the one that goes forward goes out bearing, carrying precious seed shall doubtless come again. The thing is going to be turned around. And if you came out of a place of joy, and now you've been in a place of captivity, you're going to come out of that place and you're going to return to the place of joy. But when you go back up out, you're not carrying seeds. You're carrying sheaves. What are sheaves? Sheaves will be the full stalk of wheat with more seeds in the head. It bespeaks the fruitfulness that comes out of your affliction. Do you know the word that is spoken concerning Joseph? That Joseph is a fruitful bough, B-O-U-G-H. And that he will grow and reproduce until his bough grows right over the wall of his captivity. And there will be fruit that will come out of his affliction. His first uh, way of manifesting it was when he had children in Egypt and he named the first one forgetfulness. Say it with me. Forgetfulness. That's Manasseh. And he said, the reason I'm calling my son forgetfulness 
is that God has caused me to forget the inflictions of the pain that my brothers put on me. He's caused me to forget what my brothers did to me. Now, does it mean I can't consciously remember? Does it mean it's stricken from the record? Does it mean that God's forgotten it? No, it's written permanently in the book and how many thousands and thousands of sermons have been preached, books have been written, and courage has been taken from the story of Joseph and what his brothers did to him. But he said, God's caused me to forget it as far as looking for vengeance from it. By the way, do you know what God's favorite form of vengeance is? His favorite form of vengeance is forgiveness, redemption, restoration, and reconciliation through the blood of his cross. That's the way he likes to resolve issues and solve problems is let's get redemption working. It starts with forget it as far as what's on the docket that your brothers should be brought to judgment for. Release them from that and release yourself from that vengeance and give it back to me. And God says, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I'll repay according to my system of justice, which is if they repent, I forgive them. And then we get reconciliation in the end where you've gained your brothers back. That's turning captivity captive. But do you realize that when Joseph named his son forgetfulness, that wasn't all it needed. And so he had another son, Ephraim, and he called him fruitfulness because he said, the Lord has made me, caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction, not free from the land of my affliction, but fruitful in the land of my affliction. Say it with me. Fruitful in the land of my affliction. But while he stayed right in the land of his affliction, what was given to him as captivity, where he was never a free man, but he was mighty free in his prison. He was free in the house of Potiphar. He was free in the house of Pharaoh. He was free in the prison. He was free in his office, but he wasn't a free man. He was a slave, but he was a free man. And it was never proven more than when those 11 came down and stood before him and he recognized who they were. And because of his freedom first, his forgetfulness second, his fruitfulness third, he decided to turn captivity, not only for himself, he's already free, but now he's got captive those who were his captors who seized him and put him in the dungeon, his own brothers who laughed at the idea. And now he could laugh if he wanted to at them and have them all thrown into dungeons. But he became a participant in the redemptive plan that says, let's turn this captivity. And he took them captive, not to his pain, not to his bitterness, not to his unforgiveness. He took them captive to his freedom and he made them captive to his power given by the earthly principality, Pharaoh. But he used all of his power to save them, to forgive them, to redeem them. And look how captivity turned that he sent them home to get dad and bring him back here. Now he took a little boy Benjamin captive in the meantime, make sure they got back there and make sure that they got the word to dad that he was alive, but when 
they came back. They were in his land of captivity that he had made fruitful. And what part of the land did they get? They got the land of Goshen. Now I used to think my mother owned the Atlantic Ocean because she said, when I was a kid, she'd say, my land of Goshen. And I thought she was saying, my Atlantic Ocean. I thought she owned the Atlantic Ocean. My land of Goshen. And those slaves took the best part of Egypt as their possession until 400 years when they were in captivity again. Marianne preached to you about it. And what happened? Captivity was turned when Mo went into Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He's saying, we're coming up out of here. We're going forward. We've had a lot of weeping, but we're going out of here with rejoicing and we're taking things with us. We're going to have sheaves. We're going to get a harvest. Even in this 24-hour period, they got a harvest of gold. Not bad, but they got a harvest of joy. They got a harvest of freedom. It's all the way through the scripture. It's the way God does it that when he allows you captivity or when you sell yourself into captivity by your unwise choices, anybody here ever made an unwise choice? Yeah, 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 I won't ask you in what. And you get yourself in affliction, there is a turning of the captivity when you come on up and you come on out. Now, let's go back to the book of Ruth and let me show you how they got out. Are you ready? You in the book of Ruth? You get there, won't you? You know what some of your precious seed are? Your precious seed are your children in whom you've invested your prayers and the word of the Lord. Your precious seed are your neighbors that you have been weeping over. Your precious seed may be a husband or your parents, but you're putting the precious seed of the word in them. Now I want to take you you okay? All right, fine. I guess it turned itself. That, that tape just turned its captivity right around. <laughs> Went the other way. All right, I want to take you on a journey into out. How to get out. But first, you're just going to mark in your Bible. You, you, you may not have time to write. And I should have given you copies of these notes, but I didn't. And so... Here's, what's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the steps and see how Naomi got into captivity. So verse 1 is number 1. When the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is the captivity of circumstances. Circumstantial difficulties beyond control. When they couldn't control the circumstances. There's a historical setting of your culture, your society, your politics, your war, that is going on around you may put you in captivity. There are natural disasters. We know about that from recent years, don't we? Famine, flood, hurricane, earthquake, ice storms, heat waves. And then there are changes in normal circumstances, normal conditions. There is no bread in Bethlehem. Is that tragic? That is tragic. That's the bread basket, excuse me, the bread basket of Judah. It's the bread basket of Israel, Bethlehem, Judah. Number two is from Bethlehem to Judah, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. This is critical decisions. 
that effect an unexpected turn in life, a critical decision that effects, put into effect, not AFF, EFF, causes to result, causes to happen, creates this critical decision effects an unexpected turn in life. When they went down just to sojourn, they thought they were just getting away for a little while for one season. They didn't know how long the famine was going to be, but they thought they'd escape it. And I told you this morning that Naomi's name means pleasant. And her husband's name, Elimelech, means to whom God is king. And so here's the pleasant one married to the one to whom God is king. You wouldn't think they'd make any mistakes, would you? You wouldn't think they'd make any bad decisions. I don't know. I honestly don't know because the Bible doesn't tell me whether Elimelech heard from God that he should do it. I just know he made the decision to go and he took his family. And if Elimelech was going to Moab, who was going with him? Naomi was going. And who else? If she already had children with her. The two sons, Malam and Kilian. And they went. Now they went into captivity not expecting it because it's critical decisions. There's, a, there's an uprooting from the familiar. There's separation from family and friends and neighbors from their house and from their lands. And by the way, it is spoken of, first of all, it's, it's wonderful that it's spoken of that they had an inheritance. But in the end, Elimelech redeems all of that inheritance according to God's plan of redemption. It wasn't Elimelech's idea. God had a plan for redeeming widows and redeeming property. It was God's plan. But at this point, they didn't expect to leave their houses and lands. Naomi didn't expect to be gone very long unless she was a spiritually sensitive woman who had a prophetic sense, this is no small thing we are doing. I'm following my husband. This is not going to be good. This is not going to be just a little short thing. She may have, if she was a spiritual woman, known that this was not a good decision for her family. She probably was glad to know there would be bread in Moab, but she probably thought in some ways it'd be better to stay with the famine because there are critical decisions in crisis situations where it could go this way, it could go that way, and you don't know which way is the right way, but the decision is made and you're on the journey now and you're going into that. They went to sojourn, that means just visit, be tourists, uh, just take a, a short journey through the land. Number three is in verse three, excuse me, in verse 2a. They took their two children, Malan and Killian. I'd like to take time on those two names. One of them, Malan, means a song, and Killian means complete when they're in the positive sense. But Malan can be a song that comes of joy after travail. And it can speak of grief. It can speak of wasting away, of being feeble, of, of just uh, having such uh, grief and sorrow that in the end, there's nothing but pain. I don't know why she named Malin that. But maybe it was such joy after her travail that she was thinking only of the song. But the song went sour. And his name means sick and weak and feeble. And he became sick and weak and feeble as far as we know, and he died. 
Killian can mean complete, but it also can mean pining away until it is completely wasted away and dissipated and until it is finished and done and it's over. There's not a trace of it left. It can be a negative. And so she may have had something that happened in her that said when this child was born, I'm so complete, I'm so fulfilled. But suddenly when they're in this land of Moab, it took another meaning. And it meant that now she would be pining away because she was watching her child waste away until he was finished, he was gone completely. He was dead, he was out of her life. And that's after she had been left of her husband, then she was left of her two sons. At the end, when things are turning, this, the, da the daughters of Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem will say to her, blessed are you because the Lord has not left you. And he hasn't left you without a redeemer, but as far as she knew, she was left. Her husband left her, abandonment by death. Here we go. They came into the country, Moab is number four in 2B. They thought it was just sojourning to stay there in this foreign place. They were just going to visit. Number five is verse 3A, Elimelech, her husband, died. This is the time of personal grief and loss, probably with disillusionment. And by the way, this whole teaching in its fullness on transformation that comes even in times of sorrow is on a tape called Godly Woman 2. It's the Godly Woman 2 seminar. The tapes are upstairs. These tapes that are on the list are there. And it talks in fullness. I'm just racing through it right now. Number six is in verse 3b. This is the abandonment by death of her sons. She had been single parenting excuse me, uh, uh, abandoned by death of her husband, she was single parenting now, 3B. How many of you know that can be a captivity? Where you're so bound because you're responsible for these children. And then of course, after they married, then she was responsible for them and their wives after they died, she was responsible for the wives. So number seven, they took them wives. This is dealing with children's decisions. Now, I don't know, do you think that Naomi rejoiced at the thought that her, her sons had married Gentile girls? It was against the law, it was against the law of Israel. And yet redemption was working through it. But have you ever seen your kids getting connected aligned with people that you thought, mm-mm, this isn't good, especially regarding their marriages? Mm-hmm. And so she's just going, can you see, she's going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into captivity. Now she's a captive to her children's decisions. She's forced to embrace Gentile women. Well, if you're going to go live among them, you might as well learn to love them. Lots of people learn that, you know, but she wasn't expecting it to come to this. And yet in the end, that was a source of love. Take it on to number eight is in 4B. They dwelled there about 10 years. Oh, does that mean 10 years from the time that they left Judah? Or does it mean 10 years after her sons married? And how many years was it before Elimelech died? How many years was it before her sons died? We don't know. Some say it may have been up to 20 years here that she was there. But we know from the time her sons died, it's at least 10 years, it appears. Maybe not. Maybe she had been there 10 years, and now it's a short time. We don't know. 
In number nine, the sons died, excuse me, they were there 10 years, and then the sons died, and 8a, this is the loss of her children and the emptiness of her womb at the same time, knowing she can never have another child. So when they stayed there for 10 years, separation was getting stronger and stronger. She was far from her family, time was passing. She was no longer connected to what was happening in Bethlehem, and now her sons have died, and it's a separation from her own children. Number 10, the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. It's verse 5b. This is the utter aloneness, the utter sense of abandonment. It is the loss of all of her redeemers. It is death to her future even because her sons were supposed to be the ones who would bring her fulfillment, give her grandchildren and whatever else to take care of her in her own age, old age. It wasn't happening, number 10. Number 11, 7b, her two daughters-in-law with her when she said to them in 7b and then 11b, why will you go with me? Now she's feeling the weight of responsibility. How many of you know she's getting deeper into captivity now? Now she's bound into this responsibility by her own law, her own Jewish law, to take responsibility for her daughters-in-law, but not just responsibility, but inability. Say it with me. Not just responsibility, but inability to be what she should be and give what she should give and do what she should do. Now we're coming into a bondage of loss of confidence in herself that has this sense of failure before she tries. It's one thing to have already failed, but it's another thing to realize I'm going to fail. I can't do this. I can't be what I'm supposed to be. I can't carry this responsibility. I can't hold this weight. I can't live up to the expectations. I'm not able to do this. And when you become captive to your own sense of inability with the weight of responsibility upon you, I can tell you, you can go into captivity, dark, dark prisons of depression, of discouragement, and even of of despair. Did she have any? Yes, she had despair. Number 12 is in verse 11c. Are there yet any more sons in my womb? This is her sense of utter barrenness. Inability to be fruitful. Inability to be productive. She is going into a place of darkness. This is where she's been staying. Number 13 is another captivity. <laughs> I'm too old. 12a. This is the captivity of the aging process. Does anybody know about it, you know? Yeah. What did the sister say to us last night? Now that she's 50, she's finding out things can hurt she didn't even know she had, or something like that. Yeah, the aging process, the inner changes, and the desperation point that comes when I realize because of what naturally is happening to me, I do not have the power to get out of this captivity myself, but I don't have the power to help anybody else. Have you ever been there? You can become a captive to a wounded spirit where you get paralyzed by the pain of what has happened to you and you realize you can't reach out to carry anybody. That arm is so paralyzed, that arm that used to reach out to people, but you can't help them now. Even when you get in the captivity of physical illness, 
when you're one that's used to be active and serving and helping everybody else and you can't get up remember that little commercial where the little boy was coming to bring his mother something it was years ago but because he wanted mama healed he wanted her to get up he's going to help her to get better because when mama ain't better everybody's in handicap right and so this captivity is a captivity now of her own desperation about herself and that's the place where she is verse 14 it comes to despair not not verse 14 number 14 verse 12b if i should say i have hope you know what despair means the latin word de spero d-e-s-p-e-r-o came through the french picked up the a-r so it's d-e-s-p-a-i-r but it means without hope it means the day means down and away it means some the the hope all just fell right down and i went down with it it means without hope the hope has gone away all hope has gone down she said if i should say i have hope but she's saying i don't have any hope this woman has been living in the captivity of hopelessness despair Number 15, there's only one and more in the journey in, aren't you glad? When she says, would you tarry? Also in verse 12, I think. When, or is it 13? Would you tarry? She feels that she is holding others back from life. Will you say that with me? She's holding others back from life. She's holding them back from hope because she can't be to them. She can't do for them. And number 16, verse 13c, it grieveth me much. This is the bitterness of her suffering where she is challenged not to become bitter toward God and toward life because he's dealt bitterly with him. Now, do you want to get out of captivity? Wouldn't it be good to get up and get out? Yeah. All right, just take these steps out and then you can preach it to yourself all you want to. The first step out is in verse 6, part C. You break up the verse by the clauses that are in it. For she had heard. She heard the word, or as they say in, in Africa, they heard the word. She heard the word. Information of a visitation where God has visited his people. And it came first by the word. Now tell me what comes with the word. What comes by the word. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing how? By the word of God. And when that word comes, however it was delivered, did it come from people who were taking caravans down through Moab that came through Judah? And they said, oh, the word's out. Have you heard it? Yeah. God's visited his people again. They have bread in Bethlehem. I don't know. But the, 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 the Jewish records say an angel came to her where she was and said the Lord has visited his people again in Bethlehem. Well, you know, when you really tell a, a depressed person, you know, the Lord's really moving. There's a revival going on, such and such. People are getting helped over there. And she's in Moab and she's locked in her despair and she's in captivity to grief. Do you know what her response is to you when you say, over there, there's something going on? Do you know what she, her response is? If she's still a captive to grief? Well, so what? I'm in Moab. I'm not in Bethlehem. I don't have any way to get to Bethlehem. You don't expect me to go to Bethlehem. 
God wants to do something for me. He needs to come here. Do you know the, do you know the story? Or even if you've got somebody that's in depression, lying in bed with the sheets over her head, and you say, hey, there's revival going on at our church. What, what difference does that make? She can't make it out of bed. And it's really true. They can be so captive to their grief. But when this word came to her, it came with promise. It's information of a visitation. But I think it was impartation of a will to go. I think the word brought the will. I think that the message that came to her put right into her will some kind of an energy that says, first of all, I want to, then said, I will go. In the New Testament, the word for will is thelo. Say it with me. Thelo, it's uh, transliterated T-H-E-L-O. And it has four stages in it of meaning. It can mean just a wishy-washy wish. Well, I wish I could go. Secondly, it has the want of desire. I want to go. Third, it has the willingness of surrender. I am willing to go. But fourthly, it has the strong decision of will. I will go. And I think that happened to this woman. And let me just take this few seconds to say, when you know you can't get up and get out, when you know somebody you love is in bondage, is in despair, is in darkness, and has no will and no power to get up, you don't just go in and stand and conf confess your own faith. You've got to have something to impart. And you have to pray for God to come and visit her and put in her the will to get up. Are you with me? And when you do, there has to be an impartation that comes by the word of the Lord. What you got going? I was just monitoring you. That's so nice. Make, make sure it's going good. Is it going caught good? You're going pretty good? You were caught upstairs? You got in captivity? Isn't it great? The Lord set her free from captivity up there so she could come down and minister to me? That's the turning of the captivity. That's great. All right. Well, let's get Naomi out of there, too. So that was 6C. Now I need you to back up in the verse. Let me read the verse to you and see that it's in three phases, but they're backwards. Verse 6, then she arose. What did I tell you? You never get a then until you get a when. Well, what's the when that got her the then? Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. When did that happen? When she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people. So on this verse, you need one, two, three upside down. It's the result of it is first. She arose. The intention, the decision, is that she might return. But first she had heard. So that's why number one is at the bottom of the verse. Number two is in the middle of the verse. Number three is at the beginning of the verse. Because a decision that was made down in Moab is going to help her to stand up and she arose in order that with purpose so that she could return. But if she didn't get up, she's not going back. Do you understand? It's the same thing the prodigal son came to. He came to himself and he said, I will arise and go back to my father. But see, until he got the smell of homemade bread wafting into his memory, 
And I think by the word of the Lord is the answer to his parents' prayers. One day we're going to write the prodigal's mother's story. It's going to be a little different, you know. Dad let him go, and Mommy said, what? You're going to let him go? Don't let him go. He doesn't know what to do with all that money. He's going to waste it all. Don't. What's he going to eat? He won't even know. I, I but Jesus left her out of the story. <laughs> but I'll put her in. But that prodigal got gripped by something that said, get up. Get out of this pig pen. Go home. And part of it was the memory of fresh bread in his father's house. Even the slaves on my father's farm have bread enough and to spare, he said. The servants, the hired servants. But he said, here I am, I'm a slave, I sold myself. I'm not getting paid. I don't even get food as part of what I do. At least people who work in restaurants get a meal given to them usually, you know. He couldn't even, he wasn't allowed to eat the pig's food, but he wanted to. <coughs> but there's an intention, all right, so let me give it to you. So it was, then she arose, that's 6A, number 4, she went forth out of the place where she was, is 7A. She took the first steps forward and out. Now they might have been feeble, they might have been faltering, she might have still been in grief, and now she's lived 20 years in that land, then she's going to cry over leaving there, right? and saying goodbye to whatever friends she had there. But she had her two daughters. I love this one in verse, five, um, in verse 7b, number 5. They went on the way to return. Say it with me. They went on the way to return. Let's say road instead of way. Ready? They went on the road to return. Let's say walked instead of went. They walked on the road to return. To return. They checked the map First, which road leads to Bethlehem? They got on the right road by the guidance of God and uh, whatever else help that they had. Getting on the right road in the right direction for the right reason. Say it with me. Getting on the right road in the right direction for the right reason. She's going home. She's getting up and getting out of here. Letter six, number six is go return it's verse 8 through 13. First of all, they're standing at the border of choice. Second, she's calling for her daughters to make individual personal decisions because she has made an individual personal decision and she's saying to these girls, you can go back, return to your mother, return to your gods, return to your own house. But as for me, I'm not going back. And you will find when you're helping people get up out of grief, especially if there are a whole lot of them that are suffering together, if everybody's lost, uh, has lost someone, if everybody is feeling the grief, somebody has to be the first one to say, I'm getting up out of here and I'm going toward Bethlehem. Whether you go or not, I'm not staying in this captivity anymore. You decide whether you're going with me. You decide whether you're going back. You decide where you want to live, but for me, I'm going. Individual decision-making. And then very important, this is all part of six, releasing others into their choices. Say it with me releasing others into their choices.
And when it's somebody that's really close to you, legally part of your life, or by bloodline part of your life, or in, in commitments of friendship or whatever it is, when, there comes a point when you have to release them to their decision. So when she saw Orpah turn around and go back, what did she have to do? She had to release her. She had to let her go. Say it, release her and let her go. But it was just as important for her to release Ruth into her decision. Because she kept saying, no, my daughter, no, go back, go back, go to your mother, go back to your gods, go back to your culture. And finally Ruth said, mom, now don't say that again. I'm not leaving you. So we're not gonna talk about my going back. And she had to release Ruth to stay with her. Oh, oh. She had to learn how to receive the love of another when she thought she had lost all her loves. She had to let herself release herself now to receive the service, the companionship, the devotion, the loyalty, the help that Ruth was deciding on her own to give. You know that love to be real must be voluntary. Say it back to me. Love to be real must be voluntary. Commitment to be real must be voluntary. Say it. Commitment to be real must be Covenant to be real must be voluntary. So must forgiveness and giving. Giving to be real must be voluntary. And so Ruth now has made her decision and Naomi must release her into the decision, but she also must release herself from the captivity of feeling alone and nobody loves me and nobody cares and nobody's with me and I'm all alone. She has to release herself from that captivity of her sense of aloneness. Say it with me. She had to release herself from that captivity of her sense of aloneness. You aren't alone, mom. I'm with you and I'm sticking with you. Now, I don't think she made a covenant that said, I always have to live in the house with you. I always have to stay in the house with you. No, she left Naomi home all day when she went to the fields and eventually she married and she moved out from Naomi. Maybe they built her a house on the land, I don't know. But she didn't live with Naomi in the house, but she never left Naomi. And Naomi was never alone and the women prophesied to her and said, God has not left you and he has not left you alone. This is one of the most marvelous things to be able to minister to people who really have lost the ones they thought were everything to them and to help them to get to a place where they're ready to receive what God will give them now in place. No, displacing, replacing the ones they've lost. No, but taking you into a new era in your life. Those are all sealed up in, the, in your heart of love and, and you've released them to heaven. We're not going to displace them. You're not going to forget them. It isn't as though somebody else is going to come take their place. Even when women marry again, after losing a beloved husband, they don't have to displace that husband or replace that husband. That covenant is sealed up with the covenant seal of death. It's a forever. It's finished. It's wrapped up. It's sent to heaven. It's intact. But now God expands and puts another chamber in your heart so that you can take on another new covenant and be fully involved in that covenant. It doesn't take away from the old covenant. That's a whole big thing. Yeah. Number seven from verses 14 to 17. Orpah kissed her, but Ruth clave to her. This is taking loss 
and taking love, taking loss from Orpah, taking love from Ruth. Say it with me, taking loss and taking love. Now God walks you through this thing and now they start walking. Number eight is in verse 18a. When she saw that she, Ruth, was steadfastly minded to go with her. Now, here's a beautiful thing. It's reversing responsibility as part of the turning of captivity. She's not captive anymore to her having to take responsibility for somebody else. That thing is turned and Ruth says, Mom, from this point on, I'm taking responsibility for you. Now, I don't know if there are any women in this room who've come to that point in their lives. But it was about 13 years ago, my mother sent all of her children, there, there, were, there were four of us, by that time there were only three of us, my oldest brother had died. But she sent all of us an article that I think she got from Dobson. When the mother becomes the child, and the child becomes the mother. She sent the article to us to say, I know the day is coming and I want to prepare graciously for it. But guess where we are now when she's 91? In fact, this afternoon I've just been saying to myself, I miss my mommy, I've been too busy, haven't been spending time with her. I have to go just spend time with her, find out where she is, find out what's happening on the inside of her now because of all the things that have happened on the outside with her aging process, with her blindness, with her not being able to read, not being able to write, with her Parkinson's disease with the things that are happening to her. She's in a captivity. And I've been noticing that she's going quieter and quieter. You noticed it? She's going quieter and quieter. I said, I gotta get inside my mommy. I have to find her. But now, we take care of things for her. The question is, how committed are her kids? And so far, every place we've gone to meet with the medical teams and the geriatric teams and going to seminars to find out how to take care of, of uh, our dependent parents. Everybody, every place we go, tell us how exceptional we are, because our whole family goes. All of us go, daughters-in-law go, we all go. And, and they say, we have some people who never even come to visit, not to speak of come to meet with us to find out. But yeah, reversing responsibility, but with it, to learn, learning to lean. And I think on this journey out that Naomi found out she didn't have to be the strong one. I think she leaned on Ruth's arm and she came to lean upon Ruth as her caregiver. But it didn't mean life was over for her. It was just a reversing, learning to lean quickly. I need to do what this line is about. Verse 9, she left speaking with her. I gotta do that, I gotta leave speaking with you. And this is what I put in the principle, stop talking and start walking. And women need to learn how to do this in relationships. Women can talk relationships to death. Women can talk relationships into bondage. Well, you gotta know all the commitments and are you really gonna stay with me and promise you love me forever? <laughs> Just stop talking and start walking this thing out. 
And that's, that's not just in marriages, that's in friendship. Women can bind themselves up in friendship and make promises to friends and put each other in such bondage that they can't have any other friends and I'm afraid you'll leave me if you go start having a friendship. Cut that stuff, just walk together in relationship. That was verse 18b. Stop talking and start walking. Verse 10, so 